the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is the most majestic treatment of the resurrection of Christ and its implications in the New Testament. And here in our text, this 15th chapter comes to a magnificent crescendo. And the ramifications of Christ's resurrection are driven home here. Driven home with joyful exuberance, not to mention with great literary flair. And so we'll make four points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The declaration, the mystery, the victory, and the labor. Declaration, mystery, victory, labor. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. So first, the declaration. Paul has just finished, earlier in this chapter, contrasting our natural bodies with the glorious resurrection body to come. Right? Because Christ has been raised, those in Christ, those united to him by faith, shall be raised in immortal splendor. However, the contrast between the present and the future is stark. Paul says, our bodies are sown, meaning sown like seed in our death and burial, into the earth. They are sown, he says, perishable. They are raised imperishable. They are sown in dishonor. They are raised in glory. They are sown in weakness. They are raised in power. Death, even now, after Christ's appearance, death does its disfiguring work on us all. And it leaves us with corruptible, dishonored, weak bodies to be sown into the dust from which we have come. Man, and this is a tragic situation, right? Man who was to have dominion, total mastery over the creation, now is, in a bitter irony, eaten up by the ground itself. And no amount of buffering ourselves from this or averting our eyes from it is going to help us. In fact, no amount of medical technology fundamentally changes the situation. Whether one lives for nine minutes or 9,000 years, one is mortal, not immortal, corruptible, not incorruptible, perishable, not imperishable. There is no bridge between these states. There is a great chasm fixed. Either one can die or one cannot. And Paul does not think that people who live to 2,000 are closer to immortality than people who live to two. One is either immortal or they are not immortal. And in our current embodied state, we are not. Our bodies are still susceptible and destined for death. And thus they are in the state that Paul calls weakness. 
and not resurrection glory. And it's against this backdrop that Paul makes what I'm calling here the declaration. And he makes it in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's a really startling declaration in a passage on the resurrection. Now, this does not mean that we won't have bodies in the kingdom of God. It means, as I hope has become clear, that the body, in its present form, the body in its current mode of existence, is not fit for, indeed cannot attain to the resurrection and the coming kingdom of God. Like Jesus' glorified body, our bodies must be fitted for the new creation, for their heavenly environment. Now, notice something else about the text here. The kingdom, the reign of God, is wholly, completely, completely future here. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And inherit, as we've seen, is an eschatological word, meaning a word that has to do with the end of all things. We inherit at the end. And until then, we have a foretaste. It's a glorious foretaste. It's a powerful foretaste. But only a foretaste of the kingdom of God. Now, people talk about the kingdom of God, which is here now, which has arrived in Jesus Christ. But the problem is it's often spoken of as if it's wholly and completely present, or if not wholly and completely present, largely present. Mostly present. The Corinthians certainly spoke this way. So this declaration is a reminder that all of our overly cheerful talk of kingdom building or bringing the kingdom desperately needs the realism of this text. Nothing short of the resurrection from the dead fits anybody or any body, no matter how holy, for the kingdom. With respect to our bodies, with respect to our physical constitution, the kingdom of God is completely Future, period. Inheriting the kingdom requires bodily resurrection. So to reiterate, flesh and blood in its current fallen, sinful, pre-resurrection form cannot, notice that Paul says this, cannot. It's not like it will not, as if it was just a matter of of the church being a little more obedient or a little more zealous. It cannot, it is not possible for us in this form to inherit or to come into possession of the kingdom of God. And the reason for this, the last phrase of verse 50 makes clear. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. 
We're at the heart of the human predicament here. The kingdom is imperishable and immortal, and to inherit it, you must be bodily fitted for it. That must mean you must be bodily immortal. In the opening phrases of 1 Peter, the apostle tells us that our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. It's a future reality, and Peter says it is an imperishable inheritance. And thus here, Paul says, perishable people, that's what we are, perishable people, do not inherit an imperishable kingdom. That's the declaration. It's a sober one. Seems almost like an anti-Easter declaration. But it gets better. It gets better. The second point is the mystery. And this is the answer to the dilemma of the declaration, to the plight that we are in as dying embodied creatures. That is the plight. Here is the answer. Behold, Paul says, or listen, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to reveal something to you now, he says. And the content of the mystery is this. We shall not all sleep, that is, die. Sleep is a euphemism for die. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed or transformed. Notice, even the living, right? not simply the dead, even the living need this transformation. To inherit the kingdom, we all, living and dead, need radical bodily transformation. So let me just repeat. Flesh and blood, as currently constituted, cannot. It is impossible. It cannot inherit the kingdom. Now, this would be a pure shock to the Corinthians, They were Greeks, and they had a distorted view of what it meant to be spiritual. They didn't see much need for the bodily resurrection at all. Who needs the body? They thought they were already kings. They're already rich. They're already living the heavenly life. They've already possessed the kingdom. In fact, many Christians still speak this way. This text is a bracing reminder that all, not some, All of our Christian experience in this age falls radically short of the concrete physical transformation that is needed to inherit the kingdom of God. This should be the shattering of all utopian delusions. And the transformation in view here is not only completely future, it is also instantaneous. There's nothing gradual about it. You can't incrementally achieve it. It occurs in verse 52, the text says, in a flash, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. A reference to the day of the Lord and thus to Christ's second advent or appearing. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And the living will be changed. So it's at this point with respect to our bodies, and not before this point, that we move from corruptible to incorruptible, from weakness to glory. And it is the pledge, it is the promise of Easter, that because Christ is risen, 
and because the risen Christ will come again in glory, that we who are united to him by supernaturally wrought faith, who are waiting for him, shall be translated either out of the grave or out of our current bodily life into embodied glory. Paul, it turns out, is speaking here to the deepest plight that we human beings find ourselves in, to our quandary, to the sorrow of the human spectacle, namely our mortality. We eagerly await a Savior from heaven, Paul will tell us in Philippians 3. What will he do when he appears from heaven? Paul says this, he will transform our lowly bodies. It doesn't doesn't matter how much you go to the gym, or or what you do with your diet, your body is still theologically lowly until Jesus conforms it to his glorious body at his appearance. At that moment, and not before, at this realization of the church's blessed hope, we will move from corruption and dishonor and weakness to incorruption, glory, and power, then then imperishable people will inherit an imperishable kingdom. So the dilemma of the declaration and the glory of the transition disclosed by the mystery are well captured. They're well captured by the tombstone of Benjamin Franklin. His tombstone says this on it. The body of B. Franklin, printer, Like the cover of an old book, its contents turned out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms. But, it's a long tombstone, but the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. And in verse 53, Paul turns to the utter certainty of our coming elegant and improved edition. He says there, this perishable body must, it's certain, it must clothe itself with the imperishable. This mortal body must clothe itself with immortality. Immortality is not natural. It must be given. And it's given instantaneously at the appearance of Christ, and that is the mystery. The third point here, then, is the victory. Verse 54 tells us that when this happens, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here the apostle cites Isaiah. We heard it read in the Old Testament lesson. When this happens, then shall come to pass the saying. What saying? Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he cites the taunting of death from the prophet Hosea. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The last enemy, Paul has told us earlier in this very chapter, the last enemy is death. And it is not destroyed finally until Christ appears again. Listen to the text. Note the when And the then. 
Note the when and the then. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, then the saying will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Then you can taunt death. Death is not taunted until it is fully destroyed. Then, not now, Paul says, then the saying from Isaiah will come true. Then the veil or the shroud of death, which hovers like a pall over all the nations, will be lifted. So the victory that we mortals long for, and we do long for this, if you scratch under human need just a little bit, you'll see that what we really want is immortality. The victory for which we long is future. When the mortal is clothed in immortality, then death is swallowed up in victory, and then we take up the death taunt. Until then, it appears that death is doing the taunting of us. And yet, and this is the yet of Easter, right here. Yet, in the body of the risen Christ, these words of the prophets are already fulfilled. Death could not hold him prey. Death no longer has dominion over him. He is bodily raised, never to die again. In his bodily existence, death has already been swallowed up in victory. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And if you embrace the gospel, the good news that Christ the Lord is risen today, then you already by faith, not yet by sight, but by faith, you already partake of and participate in his triumph and victory over death even now. Why is this important? Well, it means that victory over death is not just future. It means we participate in it now. And that means that the taunt in verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That means the taunt is not merely for then. It is also for now. It is a present, exultant cry of the church, a mocking taunt, O death, where is your sting? This is an important note, critical even, I think, to strike in a pandemic. Right? For people, and the church is far from exempt here, As a people, we have been psychologically terrorized by the fear of death for over a year now. All sorts of fears barraging us from every side. Fear of other people. And with all due respect and with all compassion for the victims, which include my own beloved father-in-law, victims who must be lamented and mourned, We have been terrorized in a manner all out of proportion to the actual threat. And our national and our ecclesial psychic trauma is deep. Here's a question, a probing diagnostic question I asked myself as I was working through this. 
Am I really in good conscience able to make this taunt of death after the last year? Who's been taunting who, actually? Are we really in good conscience able to stand up now and taunt death? It's difficult to taunt a foe if you are constantly cowering in fear of it. Now, yes, there is, of course, a very legitimate concern for our own lives and for the lives of our neighbors. And the issues here are difficult to navigate, or they can be. And so we have to respect one another. But we all know what was and perhaps still is in our own hearts, and that's what I'm speaking to. God alone knows what our real motives were. And so we should let him sort them out. We should not become the judges of one another. But it seems to me beyond dispute, beyond dispute, that exposing our collective fear of death, when the risk was, for the vast majority of people, quite small, was one of the many diagnostic services the pandemic provided for our souls. But there's medicine for us, and there's healing for us in the midst of our fears. Listen listen to what the book of Hebrews says on the psychic terror of death. I'm not making up this fear. It's part of the human condition. Christ shared our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. To what end? That he might free those who all their lives were held in fear by the were held in slavery by their fear of death. So, so the fear of death is a form of bondage. It is a form of slavery, and it's primal. We certainly learned that, right? It's primal, it's biochemical, it's innate, but it's also spiritual and demonic. It is an oppressing power, and it has been traded on grotesquely in our culture for over a year. And fear is not a Christian frame of mind. Caution, perhaps? Sure. Genuine care for one's life and the life of a neighbor? Sure. But fear is not a Christian frame of mind. It's a slavery from which the gospel is designed and has come to liberate us. We believe in a death-conquering, deathless Christ, and to believe in him is to live even should we die. And to live in Christ is to taunt death. To live in Christ is to be a death-taunter as one who has been liberated from its fear. And Christ's coming is not only going to destroy death, Paul says, it's going to destroy sin and it's going to destroy the law. All three powers will be destroyed at once. And in verse 57, he moves explicitly from the future to the present tense. He speaks to us now in the present. Notice what he says. Thanks be to God. 
He gives us even now, even now, the victory through Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is victorious, but notice how Paul now speaks, not in the future, but in the present. Even now, he gives us the victory, right? The resurrection light can cast out and liberate us from our darkness and our fears. Our bodily transformation is future, but it's absolutely certain in the body of the risen Christ to whom you are united by faith. Thus again, the cry of verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? That's the basic cry of the church. And this cry can be for us, Paul says, a present tense cry, an exultant cry, a cry of astonishment and awe and amazement in the Easter light of the risen one. So it turns out that all of this future transformation means present victory and joy. Sober and realistic to be sure. It's a victory in which our outer man still decays, in which we are all subject to to viruses and other forms of dying and death. But it's a victory really tasted and really celebrated nonetheless, and that brings us to the fourth and final point here, the labor. It's really interesting. Paul thinks there are enormous implications for this. In verse 58, we see them. These are the implications of that simple line in the creed which summarizes this text. I believe in the resurrection of the body. High theology is highly practical. And so the apostle concludes this with an exhortation. He says, therefore, because of all that we've looked at, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Always give yourselves Fully to the work of the Lord. What do you know? There's no exception there. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Even in these times. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And the words Paul uses here for labor, for work, these are words which mean vigorous toil. Fatigue-inducing hard work for the sake of the gospel. How else could someone live who believes this particular text? Right, Because your transformation is certain, and because the victory is already being given to you, then nothing done in Christ is lost. Nothing is in vain. So you want the bottom line. The apostle is saying something like this. Get all of your skin, your whole embodied being into the game, into the toil of the Lord, current conditions notwithstanding. As our bodies themselves will be given new glory, so our labors, which often seem to be in vain, don't they? Our labors often seem weak, frail, ineffective. Our labor, Paul says will be transformed and made fruitful by the mighty power of God. So stand fast, he says. Do not be moved by anything. Do not be moved. Abound 
at all times, always in the toil of the Lord. That way you are living out and acting out your confession. You believe in the resurrection of the body. Let the victory taunt be in your life and on your lips. Christ is risen, and you are destined to rise with him. Amen.